Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. As you're well aware, it was 15 years ago today that uh, 19 men boarded four planes, took almost 3,000 lives. The ones who planned this attack and who executed the attack made it very clear about who they did it for. They did it in the name of Allah. Now, for most of the Western world, this was the day that Islam moved from kind of a, a background awareness to the forefront of our thinking. And now, 15 years later, it only seems to be getting worse. In the name of Allah, more and more people are strapping on suicide vests and grabbing uh, weapons and guns and taking innocent lives. Now, the threat used to come pretty much just from the Middle East, but now it's homegrown. It's American and European citizens who are taking lives in the name of Allah. And the big question is, why? What, what is going on? Now, many believe it's because of political injustice. This thought goes like this, because of the creation of the State of Israel in 1948, and that displaced a large number of Palestinians who are Muslim, and that's caused an ongoing conflict in that region, and that the Palestinian problem has really never been solved. And so the thought is, is if we uh, keep siding with Israel, we're, we're never going to solve this threat. But Israel was created, as I said, in 1948, and terrorism has been a response to the creation of the state of Israel. But the recent rise in the numbers of attacks and the type of attacks indicate something new and different is going on now. Some say it's driven by economic injustice. It's the lack of jobs and economic opportunity in some regions of the world that is driving people towards this kind of extreme thought and all the attacks that go with it. But if you look at the majority of the attackers, not all of them, but most of them have good jobs. And many of them come from wealthy families, so that doesn't seem to explain what's going on. Well, if you listen to those who are doing the killing, they are very clear about why. They will tell you why. They will say it's because of their Islamic faith, that it's Islam that compels them to do this. Now, that's a, that's a pretty scary statement because there are an estimated 1.6 billion Muslims in the world. And if the threat comes from a group that large, well, they're, they're, honestly, there's really not much we can do about it. And that's why the leaders of the world are doing everything they can to separate the threat of terrorism from the religion of Islam. You used to hear phrases after the attacks like radical Islam or Islamic extremism, but now you hear a different phrase. The phrase is extremist ideology. President Obama has been using this phrase for about the past 20 months. And so now after every terrorist attack, we know the formula. We know what's going to be said. Extremist ideology will be condemned, and Islam will be declared to be a religion of peace. And anyone who questions these ideas is labeled as Islamic phobic, Islamophobic. In other words, there's an idea behind these attacks, it's, and it's an extreme idea, but we're not allowed to talk about where this idea is coming from, because that would offend 1.6 billion Muslims. Now, let me be clear. I, I don't believe that every Muslim is a threat. I think the vast majority are like us, in that they want to provide for their families like we do, and they, they would prefer to live in peace like we live in peace. They would prefer to find security like we experience security. But if we refuse to consider 
the source of the idea that is driving this rise in terrorism, we will have absolutely no chance of stopping it, politically or by any other means. And we will have no idea, personally, about how to respond to it. Now, let me be clear. I'm not an expert in Islamic studies. I'm the pastor of a Christian church. Now, my degree was in world religions, and I first began to read the Quran when I was in my 20s, about 35 years ago. And I have studied extensively uh, about the religion of Islam. But I don't know everything about Islam. I'm not an expert. But I decided that on this 15th anniversary of 9-11 that, that it would be helpful for us to talk about and for me to present to you some of the conclusions that I've come to on what's really going on. Now, you don't have to agree with me. I encourage you to examine these thoughts for yourself. In fact, every time I stand up here on Sunday, I would say, don't, don't just buy what I'm saying. Check it out for yourself. Do the thinking yourself, because you're going to act on what you're convinced of, not what I'm convinced of. But I want to address three questions this morning. Question number one is, what is Islam? Question number two builds on that, and what is radical Islam? And then question number three is, how should we respond? Question number one, what is Islam? This is a, a brief overview of, of what it means practically to be a Muslim. Muslims, first of all, believe that there is one God, and his name is Allah. They believe that Allah sent many prophets to represent him. Abraham was one of the prophets. They believe uh, Allah sent. Jesus is another prophet. They believe Allah sent. But then they believe Allah sent his final and greatest prophet. His name is Muhammad. He was born in 570 A.D. And they believe that through the angel Gabriel, as Muhammad claimed, that that God, Allah, gave Muhammad his words. And those words were written down in the Quran. And the Quran is the foundational authority for all of Islam. Here is my copy of the Quran. The Quran is in uh, ancient Arabic. This has got an English um, explanation on the side, and the Arabic is in the column. So this is my copy. It's in English, so I can read it. And this is, this is the foundational book, the authority for the religion of Islam. It is a collection of sayings that have no precise chronological order or thematic order to them. In fact, I've got a friend who just recently, because of all the terrorism going on, he said, I, I've got to get a copy of the Quran and figure out what's going on. So he bought himself a copy of the Quran and he tried to work through it for the better part of two weeks and he confessed to me, he said, I can't get through this thing. It is so hard for me to read and, and to understand and that's been my experience as well. It's, it's very kind of confusing. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense. There's no real set of stories to it like you find in the Bible. And so if you read the Quran as a Muslim, you really wouldn't know how to practice your faith. The statements in the Quran are often contradictory and they're hard to understand. And this is why Muslims have a second source of authority, the written record of what Muhammad himself actually did and what he taught apart from just the sayings in the Quran. And these writings are called the Hadith collections. They were written, the first ones were written about 150 years after Muhammad died about the life of Muhammad. There's estimated to be about 500,000 of these documents, but six of the collections are thought to be the most accurate, and they form the second source of authority for Islam. So you have the Quran as the primary source of authority, and then secondarily, you have the Hadith collections. But most Muslims will never understand the Quran 
or the Hadith collections. And the reason is not because of a lack of commitment. It's because both are written in ancient Arabic. And that is believed to be the language of God. It's, it's blasphemy to actually try to translate these words into another language. Because you're translating the words of God that should not be messed with or changed in any way. So Muslims will learn how to recite the Quran in Arabic without really understanding what it means and what's going on. Even those who speak modern Arabic, they will understand a lot of the words that they're saying, but they won't understand what to do with these words. I saw this with my own eyes in a mosque in northern Ghana, Africa, which is a Muslim part of that country. It was a, we were uh, talking to the imam of that mosque, and he brought a group of young men out. They were probably 12 to 15-year-old young men, and, and they began to recite the Quran for us in Arabic. But their native tongue was Dagbani. They, they didn't know ancient Arabic. They didn't know. I asked, do they know what they're saying? It's like, oh, no. But it was amazing to, to listen to them recite. It was almost like a, a performance of the Quran. So the question then is, how does the average Muslim then know how to practice their faith? How do they know what it really means to be a Muslim? Well, they rely on the teachings of the imam at their local mosque. Now there are peaceful imams and there are not peaceful imams. In the West, the vast majority of imams preach a message of peace. So what has happened now to Islam? That brings us to our second question. What is radical Islam? Why are so many Muslims being radicalized and, and killing people? Well, the reason in part is because you can now get a copy of the Quran and the Hadith collections in English or French or German or pretty much whatever language you read. And so you can now read for yourself what Muhammad did. And you can decide now for yourself then what it means to be a Muslim. You have access now to the source text. And this is a recent development, just a few decades old. And now, of course, with the explosion of the Internet, these original texts are just one click away. So what that means, and this has been a fundamental shift in Islam, Islam is no longer imam dependent for interpretation of what it really means to be a Muslim. And that has given to the rise in the number of Muslims calling for a return to the original texts of Islam. In fact, if you look at the recruitment sites used by ISIS, and I would not recommend that you do this unless you want a visit from the FBI, but if you look at some of the recruitment sites and some of the things that they post, they, they refer to the Quran all the time. You will see the Quran quoted to justify their call to jihad, their call to violence. And the problem is not that they're, they're not just quoting some obscure lines taken out of context. I mean, people can take any document and lift a few lines out and make it say whatever they want to say. But groups like ISIS are not just taking things out of context. They're not just taking a few obscure things out of context. They are pointing to the real facts of what Muhammad did and clearly what he told Muslims to do after he died. Now, in the past, imams could kind of shape the message of Islam to fit whatever culture or whatever interests they had, and they could counter whatever uprisings might come like this. But now, they've been taken out of the authority loop by the Internet, primarily. 
And so more and more, particularly young Muslims, are going online to check it out for themselves. They're looking at what the Quran says for themselves. They're reading the Hadith collections for themselves. You see, ISIS makes the claim that they are reforming Islam, and they are bringing it back to what the founder commanded. That's their claim. Al-Qaeda claimed the same thing. The Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt claims the same thing. They claim to be the purest form of Islam. And they have a point. From the time Muhammad gained enough followers to successfully fight, he launched battles every year until he died for 10 years. He commissioned or personally led 86 battles, which was an average of about nine a year. The biggest battle was for Mecca. Ten years after having fled Mecca for his life, to save his life, he returned with an army of 10,000 and conquered that city and went on to conquer more beyond that. The Quran is divided into segments called surahs. Some of them are the lengths of what we would say a chapter, and some of them are quite a bit longer. And they're, they're, they're presented in the Quran out of chronological order. In other words, the order in which Muhammad says Gabriel told him this is, is not the order that you will find in the Quran. But the order is known, it's just not presented in that order. And Surah number 9 is the last chapter in the Quran, not in order, but in chronology. And it is by far the most violent of all the segments of the Quran. The last thing that Muhammad says Gabriel revealed to him from Allah. It's the most violent of all the surahs. And the, the title of this surah is called The Disavowal. The Disavowal. And the reason for this title is because in it, Muhammad justifies disavowing or canceling all of the treaties of peace that he had formed with the different tribes on the Arabian Peninsula so that he could, with his army of 10,000, conquer those that he had formed peace treaties with. That's why it's called the disavow. It's also called the disavow because it displaces all of the former references to peace that had earlier been made in the earlier surahs of the Quran. Now, if there was any confusion at all about what Muhammad had intended for the future of Islam, you only have to look at what his followers did after he died. They were not confused at all about what their marching orders were. They were marching orders. In the final chapter of the Quran, Surah 9, Muhammad launched Muslims into warfare with no end in sight. And so within 150 years after the death of Muhammad, they had conquered a third of the known world at that time. They knew what, what Muhammad had ordered them to do. Recently, I was driving to LAX, and I got to that section where you drive under the um, runway, and I saw a plane kind of parked on the tarmac that I, I didn't recognize the markings. And as I got closer, I realized that it was a, a plane from uh, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Airlines. And what struck me was the logo on the tail of the plane. Here's a picture of the logo that's on the tail of the planes from Saudi Airlines. Now, the palm trees, that makes sense. But the two swords is what stood out to me. It's like, that, that's an interesting logo for an airline, two swords. But the reason for this logo is because it reflects the Saudi flag. This is a picture of the Saudi flag. The top um, section is ancient Arabic, and it is the statement of faith for Islam. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. That's what it says on the top. And then underneath is the sword. 
Why the sword? There, there's no ambiguity as to what Muhammad was about and what he intended, how he intended Islam to advance. It was through the sword. And this fact that is now being rediscovered more and more by the followers of Islam because of the Internet, really, has put modern Islamic landscape into tremendous turmoil. And really, this is pretty similar to the kind of thing that happened to Christianity back in 1517. This was when the Protestant Reformation took place. At that time, the only translation of the Bible was in Latin, because many believed at that time that Latin was the language of God. Now, God never said that, but they decided that Latin was the language of God and that the Bible should not be translated into the common language. And so the only translation was in Latin. And also, you couldn't get a copy of the Bible because they were very expensive. They were handwritten copies. One estimate I saw said a copy of the Bible back then would be about $200,000 in today's money. People just didn't have a copy of the Bible. They didn't get a chance to read the Bible, and they, most of them didn't speak Latin. So very few of them ever read the Bible for themselves and really knew what Jesus said. So just as Islam has relied on the imams for instruction, Christians at that point relied on priests primarily for their instruction. And over time, in the Christian faith, as you can imagine, things drifted pretty far from the original teachings of Jesus. And this all came to a head in Germany in 1517. Martin Luther was a priest of a poor parish in Germany. St. Peter's was under construction in Rome, that giant cathedral, very expensive, and they were needing to raise a lot of money to fund the construction of St. Peter's. And so the Vatican would send priests out into the countryside and into Europe to raise money, and they would do this primarily by selling indulgences. Now, an indulgence was a piece of paper, an official piece of paper from the Vatican, declaring how many years off of purgatory would be granted for someone that you loved who had already died. And so the selling priests would simply negotiate how much the person would give, and then you'd, they would fill in the name of the person, if it's your father who died, it would be their name. And then based on how much money you gave, how many years they, their sentence in purgatory would be reduced. This is one of the major ways they funded the construction of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Now, Martin Luther, he knew Latin. He actually knew Hebrew, the original language of the Old Testament. And he knew Greek, the original language of the New Testament. And he had access to a copy of the Bible. And he knew that none of this stuff is in the Bible. And when he saw these priests from the Vatican take money from these hardworking people by getting them to feel guilty about not loving their loved ones who had died, he'd had enough. And he protested. That's why it's called the Protestant movement. He protested. And he said that this is not in the Bible. This, this is not true. This is not what Jesus taught. And he listed this and other grievances that he had that were not in Scripture. Now, he wasn't the first one to protest. But he was in trouble after he protested. And so someone who really cared about him and had a castle, they, they basically put Martin Luther in house arrest for his own protection for the better part of two years. Luther never left the, the grounds of this castle. And I've actually seen the small little room that he lived in for the better part of two years in Germany. And while he was there in that room for two years... He took the time to take the Greek New Testament and translate it into the German language. 
Now, again, this was not the very first time the Bible had been translated into a language other than Latin. But what was different about this time is the printing press had just been invented, also in Germany, the Gutenberg printing press. And the very first thing printed on that press was the Bible. And so within a few short years, all kinds of copies of the Bible were out there in the German language. And all kinds of common people in Germany could read the New Testament for themselves. And that changed everything. I mean, the gig was up. No longer could someone, no priest or someone like me, stand up in front of a church like this and say something that wasn't in the Bible. I mean, every Sunday that I speak, I know that I can't make this stuff up. Because there's copies of the Bible right in front of you. You can pull it out and say, uh-uh, that's not what it says. Or where is that in the Bible? So it forces the church to stay faithful to what Jesus taught and what he did. And this, is, this reformed the church. That's why it's called the Reformation, the protesting Reformation. It didn't just change the churches who went on to become the Protestant churches who left the Catholic Church. It changed the Catholic Church as well. The Catholic Church was the only church then. Catholic means universal. That's all there was. It changed the Catholic Church as well. And it, it moved the Christian faith back to the original text, back to what the founder, Jesus Christ himself, had taught and what he had done. And now, it's groups like the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and Al-Qaeda and ISIS that are doing the exact same thing to Islam that Martin Luther did to Christianity. They are calling Islam back to the original texts, back to the roots of what the founder actually taught and did. And the internet is doing now what the printing press did then. It's giving access to the source texts where there had been no access before. Now, getting back to the source materials was a very good thing for Christianity. It is not a good thing for Islam. And the reason is because Jesus and Muhammad are very different. Historically, what they did and what they taught is very different. What's the same is they both faced death because of what they taught and what they said. The political powers that be at the time wanted both Muhammad and Jesus dead now. They responded very differently. And they told their followers to respond very differently. Muhammad ran for his life when news came that he was about to be arrested and killed. And then he returned with an army of 10,000 and conquered the city that wanted him dead. But Jesus didn't do that. You know what Jesus did, right? Well, when one of his 12 disciples betrayed him and showed up in the Garden of Gethsemane with soldiers to arrest him so that they could crucify him, well, let me read what happened. This is in Matthew 26, verse 50 through 53. Jesus replied, friend, do what you came for. Friend, he says this to Judas, his betrayer. Friend, do what you came for. No resistance. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. These were the soldiers. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus was not interested in a power move. 
He was not interested in saving his life. He had all the power that he needed at his fingertips. He was God in flesh. There were legions of angels ready to rescue him. He didn't need a sword or a, a set of swords. You see, Jesus came to do something very different than Muhammad came to do. Muhammad came to change the political landscape of the world. Jesus came to change people's hearts. They both came to change the world, but very differently. Jesus would often say, my kingdom is, <laughs> is not visible. It's invisible. It's, a, it's in you. It's in you. It's in your heart. I want to change people from the inside. You can't do that by force. You can't, with a sword or a gun, force people to believe anything. They have to freely choose to do that. It's very different than Muhammad. And this actually was one of the confusions of the followers of Jesus. They all thought that, like everyone, he was here to not only bring truth about God, but bring, bring it by force and change everyone by force. That's why the sword was drawn. Jesus said, no, put that away. That's not what I'm about. In fact, at the last meal that he had with his disciples, Jesus wanted to be as clear as he possibly could about what he was about. And so before the meal began, he shocked every one of his disciples by grabbing a towel and putting it over his arm and kneeling down and taking the basin of water that would be at the door and then going around one by one and washing his disciples' dirty feet. This was a shock. I mean, the practice was common. With the dirty roads and sandals, this was a common thing that you would have your feet washed, but, but it would be washed by a servant, most likely a lowly slave. The lowest person would do this awful and menial job. And Jesus said, I, I, I want you <laughs> to understand what I'm about. I'm he, he washed every one of their feet. You see, then he told them that this was an example of the kind of thing that they needed to do. And then this is what he said in John 13, 35. By this, you know, when you do these kinds of things, Jesus said, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. That, that's the hallmark of, of my followers, Jesus said, is if, if you will put a towel over your arm and you'll kneel down and you'll, hurt, you'll, you'll help people. That can begin to change the world, not by force, but one heart at a time. Muhammad's last words sent his followers off to war. Jesus' last words sent his followers off to love, sacrificially. It's very different. So you may be asking, well, what about the Crusades? That's a great question. There, there is no denying that people have done horrendous things in the name of Jesus Christ. The Crusades is just one example of that. But what I would say is if you look at history... It took 1,000 years for Christians to warp the life and the teachings of Jesus enough to justify war. It took 1,000 years for things to get off the rails that much, to where people could actually put a cross on a shield and kill people in the name of Jesus. Jesus never taught that. You see it right here. He said, put your sword away. But it took a thousand years of people not having access to the Bible, not reading it for themselves, to get things so out of shape that they could justify war in the name of Christ. And they did. But that's not what Jesus taught. I would say the same kind of thing has happened in Islam, but in a different direction. 
we now hear that Islam is the religion of peace. And I would say it has taken now 1,300 years, that's about how long since Muhammad, it's taken 1,300 years for Muslims to warp the teachings and the life of Muhammad to the point where they can actually stand up and say that their religion is a religion of peace. That's not what Muhammad taught. That's not what Muhammad did. What I'm saying is both should be evaluated by what the founder taught and what the founder did, not how poorly the followers warp what the founder did or what the founder taught. So the question then is, how should we respond? Well, Islam right now is in tremendous turmoil. It's being upended in all kinds of ways. The vast majority of Muslims simply want to live their lives in peace. But the call to reform Islam is growing and expanding. The call to reform Islam from groups like ISIS is forcing many of them out of their homes and causing them to run for their lives in places like Syria and Iraq because they're not true believers. Many of them are being beheaded and executed because they're not abiding by the true form of Islam. And so they're running and they're fleeing and they're refugees, but they're running into a world that is scared of them. Because there's just no way to tell which one of them's might, one of them might be answering the call to arms. Many of them have lost absolutely everything. And they are running with their wives and their sons and their daughters. And their life is awful. And even those who've grown up in this country, they, who don't live in places like Syria or Iraq, they're being caught up in all of this too. As Muslims, their loyalty to our country is being questioned, even if they're citizens here and have grown up here and have never ever been to the Middle East. Their, their loyalty is being questioned. They're living in fear of retaliation. And honestly, we are living in fear of them. So what can be done? I believe, and history will tell. You know, we, you can make statements that something is historic. History will tell whether or not this is. But I, I, I think quite possibly this is a time of unprecedented opportunity in the flow of human history. You see, I, I do not believe that Allah is the one true God. I think Muhammad made all this stuff up just for power. His wife thought he was demon-possessed. And so I don't believe Muhammad is, is his prophet. That means I believe, and I believe that 1.6 billion people are trapped in a lie. Now, this is not a I'm right and you're wrong, I'm smart and you're not kind of thing, because this is a lie that has cost them dearly over the centuries, especially the women. I mean, if you're a woman living in an Islamic regime, your life is awful. If you're a woman, and, and you need to thank God every single day that you were not born in that part of the world. If you were born in that part of the world as a woman and you live here, you do thank God every single day that you're here and you're not there. Life under Muslim rule is, is horrible. But I believe that for the first time since the inception of Islam, this lie is beginning to unravel now. I don't know if it will completely, but it's beginning to unravel. The years of the culture and the tradition of Islam that has held it in place are beginning to be stripped away by these terror groups 
And Muslims are, for the first time in history, being forced to read and consider what their prophet really did and what he really said. This is new for them. He really did this? That's news to most Muslims. He really said this? That's news. And this is forcing more and more Muslims, especially young Muslims, into an awful dilemma. The dilemma is, is, is a three-headed dilemma. As they begin to read what the Quran says with understanding, as they begin to see what the Hadith collections say that Muhammad said and what he did, they are forced into this dilemma. Either, number one, they accept the call of groups like ISIS and they join them in jihad and be true to their faith and the call of their founder. That's option one. Option two, they become nominal Muslims, which means they just go through the motions, but they don't really believe any of it to be true. Or number three, they leave their faith. They leave Islam. And oftentimes, their families in the process. And as Muslims make this very, very difficult choice, it would benefit the world and them if they didn't make it all alone or with the help of an ISIS recruiter. We need to show compassion for Muslims and befriend them. We need to do what Jesus told us to do. He didn't say wrap a towel around your arm and, and serve those who you feel completely comfortable with. He said, love. People will know you're my disciples if you love. And that's the only way that we will ever get a voice as, as one Muslim after another faces this horrible dilemma of, of, of reading the source text of their religion and, and facing the crisis of what, they sh what they're going to do now. The only way we will ever have a voice into this dilemma is if, if a Muslim knows that we actually care about them. Now you might say, but I don't know any Muslims. Well, I have a solution for you. We work with a group in Anaheim called the Voice of the Refugees. It's a, group, it's a Christian group made up of those primarily from the Middle East who are now Christ followers. And their heart is to help refugees who have been granted asylum by our government adjust to life here in America. It's a big adjustment. And there are all kinds of practical ways that you can help and ways that you can build friendships. Fifteen years. And it is, it, is, it is time to stop picking sides in the political rhetoric. Stop getting mad at one side of the political solution to another. It's, it's time to actually get involved, to do something. We are the generation of Christians on scene when Islam is in crisis. I mean, that, that's unprecedented. That, that's amazing. I, I personally believe that I'll stand before Jesus, and some of the questions will be, so, so you got to be there when Islam was unraveling. What did you do? And if my only answers are, well, I got really mad, or I got really scared, I don't want to have those be the answers. This is what Muhammad said in his farewell address to his followers in March of 632. These are his last 
recorded words. He said, I was ordered to fight all men until they say, there is no God but Allah. Two months after 9-11, Osama bin Laden in November of 2001 said this, I was ordered to fight the people until they say, there is no God but Allah, and his prophet is Muhammad. Where do you think he got that? It's an extreme idea, but it has a history. It goes all the way back to the founder, Muhammad himself. Let me read the, the opening lines of the 9-11 Commission report that came out five years ago. It says, on that September day, we were unprepared. We did not grasp the magnitude of a threat that had been gathering over time. As we detail in our report, this was a failure of policy, management, capability, and above all, a failure of imagination. We just, we just didn't, didn't think this could ever happen. We look back so that we can look forward. Today, we, we have looked back on a horrible day. Not so we could just feel something and then move on, but so that we can, we can move forward. Now is the time to act. So I have some next steps for you to consider. These are on the bottom of your listing guide, also the back of your connection card. Step number one, pray for Muslims. Make this just a part of your practice. Pray for those that you know who are Muslims. Pray for them, those who are Muslims in general. Pray that God would, would free them and protect them and that they would come to know who the one true God is. And then befriend and help Muslims. Now, if you want to find out more about helping out with the Voice of the Refugees, uh, under the I'd like more information section on the back of your connection card, there's a box that says, you know, I'd like more information about the Voice of the Refugees. Just check that box. Make sure we've got your contact information, and we'll get that information to you. And you can decide what and how and maybe if you want to be involved in that. But I would encourage you to look around. There are more Muslims around you than you probably realize. Look around and ask God to help you figure out a way where you can put a towel over your arm and kneel down and actually serve and love those who are Muslim. And then I would encourage you to invite your friends to church. You know, we've talked about that. Uh, our big day is next Sunday. So I just encourage you to invite your friends to church. And the reason is we're just not trying to get everyone on our side. The, the ideas about God matter. They shape the flow of human history. And they shape the kind of lives that people really live. So when you invite someone to come to church, you quite possibly are changing their entire life. So I encourage you to do that this week. Then lastly, um, this is not on your list here, but I would encourage you to join a growth group if you haven't yet. They start this week. And the reason is because growth groups are designed to take what we talk about on Sunday and look at the Bible for ourselves and discuss how we can apply it. You don't want to become a nominal Christian for whom this is just a kind of a ritual. It doesn't really change your life. It doesn't really have an impact. That's not going to change the world. We need to take this seriously. And we need to begin to do this. And growth groups is just one way to really help you do that. So I'd encourage you to sign up for one if you have not. Let's pray together. Father, we, um, well, first of all today, we, we pray for those um, family and friends who, who lost someone on 9-11. It's been 15 years, but I'm sure the pain has not gone at all. And just even this day is,
is, is hard. So we pray that you bring comfort to them. We pray for those uh, family and friends of those that, that have given their lives in the war against terror that followed that day. We pray that you would comfort them as well. And for those whose lives have been taken, families who have been disrupted um, in the terror attacks since that day. God, we ask that you'd bring comfort. We pray for the, the Muslims in Syria and Iraq that are fleeing for their lives with their little ones and nothing else. God, we pray that you would bring them to a knowledge of you and we pray that you'd provide for them. We pray for those that are coming to our county. You would help us to recognize and see ways that we can be of real help. Jesus, we want to we be like you. We want to, to love in a way that truly is radical and be a part of changing this world one heart at a time. And we thank you that at the point of death, you didn't pull out a sword. You didn't run away and return with an army. You gave your life for us. Help us now in this unprecedented time in history to be your hands and your feet and your heart. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.